0: When Susan McPherson was 22 years old, her parents were on vacation in Puerto Rico when the unthinkable happened. It was New Year's Eve, December 31, 1986. Her dad had dropped her mother off at the casino of what was then the DuPont Plaza Hotel in San Juan. At 3.30 p.m., three disgruntled employees of the hotel who were embroiled in a labor dispute with the owners set fire to the hotel, killing nearly 100 people, including McPherson's mom, and causing hundreds of injuries. It was the most catastrophic hotel fire in Puerto Rican history and the second deadliest fire in US history. The three men who set the fire were brought to justice and received long jail sentences. And there were big changes to hotel fire safety laws and protocols but it was small comfort for McPherson, for whom the shocking loss of her mother was a profound moment of grief and transformation. Joining me now is Susan McPherson. She's the founder and CEO of McPherson Strategies, a communications consultancy focused on the intersection of brands and social impact mcpherson is a super connector an angel investor and corporate responsibility expert with more than 25 years of experience in marketing public relations and sustainability communications she's a popular speaker and a regular contributor to high profile business publications mcpherson also is the author of a new book called the lost art of connecting the gather ask do method for building meaningful relationships the book is particularly relevant in today's pandemic-fueled antisocial world. Susan, welcome to When It Mattered. I am so honored to be here, Sheetra. Thank you so very much. The loss of your mother, I guess 35 years ago, uh, is something that probably is as fresh today as it was then. Uh, where were you when you heard the news?
1: Uh, you couldn't put it more um, perfectly, if if I can use that word, because every single second of the day leading up and the day after is as fresh as it was a week ago. I was actually at a fraternity party in Richmond, Virginia, with the boyfriend I had at the time, uh, who had attended Randolph Macon College, and it was New Year's Eve weekend, and we had gone down to celebrate with his fraternity brothers, and I literally remember the red cashmere sweater that I was wearing, the crystal brooch that was actually my mom's that I pinned on myself while I was dancing around. I was so looking forward to that evening to the 21st night of September. And I'm failing to remember the actual name of the song, but I think you probably know it. Um, I will save your audience from singing it. uh, But but yeah, I mean, this was obviously pre internet and uh, pre cell phones, but it is, it is as vivid in my mind as if it was last week.
0: And what do you remember?
1: Well, interestingly enough, uh, you know, CNN started, w- was fairly new, and CNN started broadcasting uh, the news, which I caught when we came back to our motel room. I think we were staying at what was then maybe a, a, the early, whatever was pre Motel 6. Because again, this was the, the New Year's Eve, 1986. And once they said the hotel, DuPont Plaza, I immediately um, had a deep sigh of relief because I knew my parents weren't staying at that hotel. They had, as you said, gone to Puerto Rico for the, um, the Christmas holidays. And I you know, was again, of course, and my boyfriend said, let's just turn off the TV. This is depressing to watch. And it turns out it's, it's a good thing we turned it off because my dad was actually interviewed on CNN uh, and I probably would have had a heart attack seeing him. And then we, unfortunately, the next morning were uh, driving back up to Washington, D.C., which is where I was spending my, the holiday break from graduate school. I was in graduate school at Boston University at the time and I was staying at my aunt's home who at the time lived in Washington, D.C., and listening to all news radio on the way back, all we kept hearing on the radio was the number, the numbers of deceased going up. And I said to um, my boyfriend, I said, we should stop just because it's gnawing on me. We should stop at a, a gas station and, and just, I should call to my aunt's house and, and just find out if, if things are okay, uh, just to make sure. So we stopped at a gas station and I put a quarter into the phone and dialed my aunt's house. And my cousin Anna answered the phone and said, are you on your way home? She didn't even say anything else. And I said, yes, why? She said, well, your dad is fine. And those were the four words that told me all I needed to know. And yeah, the hour or the two hour drive, it was snowing. So the, the and the traffic was treacherous on New Year's Day. And, um, you know, the distance from Richmond to Washington, if I recall, is probably an hour and a half, maybe two hours, um, but it seemed like an eternity. And I still remember walking up the steps. My aunt's home was in Rock Creek Park and it felt like a thousand steps. But when I got to the top of the stairs, um, My aunt was there and and I just collapsed in her arms. And that's basically how I learned. Um, The challenging thing of course though was, um, and this is something I could identify so much with the horrific building collapse in Miami. And that is we could not get death confirmation for another week because we had to send dental records uh, so she could be identified. So there was that somewhat piece like just a little bit of hope that maybe she left the casino and you know maybe went off gallivanting with somebody that she met Uh, but of course you know that that dream or or that fantasy soon was conflated.
0: Yeah and it was unfortunate I think because a lot of the damage happened in the casino area so and and that probably made it even worse.
1: Absolutely absolutely and I think honestly for the first I mean, I—I almost now, looking back, the first ten years, I—I I, kind of think I was in a coma, but the first month, it, I was definitely in a coma because you—you you, just the reality of it all is just so bizarre. How did you get through it? I don't know if I ever did. I don't know if you can ever recover from, from something like that, and. I will say that, you know, uh, therapy uh, at the time there was, there, there was very little community. Um, you know, I, luckily I lived in a family that um, felt very strongly that we don't, we, we continue to talk about her to keep her memory alive. I had many friends who grew up in families that when somebody died, they would immediately just, just cease talking about them. Um, so just keeping her memory alive was very, very helpful. but. Um, you know, the the books that I was given, you know, Elizabeth Keebler's the, the the Six or The Ten or whatever, Five Stages of Grief, none of those really, really helped. I just wanted her back and I wanted to erase the, the, the actual happening that happened. You know, I think today, I mean, there, there are so many communities that have been founded around grief and loss that I wish we had had back then, you know, and obviously this was long before the internet, but... Uh, For people who go through sudden death now, I'm not suggesting that they have a quote-unquote easier ride, but I am grateful that they have so many more resources at their disposal besides just books. I will say the one book that I read that actually somehow just helped on a very, very tiny scale, and it was a book by Rabbi uh, Kushner called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And It's a timeless book that I would recommend for anybody going through grief, Um, but that especially spoke to me uh, and also just, you know, helped me realize that sometimes things are just awful and there's nothing other than time to deal with it.
0: Those men were brought to justice. They got a lot of long sentences. Uh, the fire resulted, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, in a new federal lawsuit for hotel safety or, around fires. Hotels around the world changed their protocols. Did that help a little bit, knowing that some some good came out of something absolutely terrible? Oh, absolutely,
1: absolutely. And I, I barely remember, but I think my brother testified uh, on Capitol Hill to help um, uh, that legislation be passed, um, requiring hotels to have better sprinkler systems and and far more oversight onto, you know, issues that could lead to fire and other calamities. So, oh, for sure. Um, And, you know, there's, there's always the good that I had her for the, the, you know, 22 years that, that I did. And I often carry that in my heart, and I try in every shape, way, and form to live a life that she would have continued had she, had she stayed with us. Um, I am now at the age she was when she was killed. I'm 56.
0: So she died ex- very, very young. Tell us a little bit about her. Her name yeah. was Beryl. Uh, what was she like?
1: Vibrant, um, the original serial connector, but she did it with a telephone and a typewriter and her Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, she had gone back to work um, in 1973, I think, when I was in second grade, which was very unusual. Um, previously to that, she had been a very dutiful wife to a professor. So, uh, you know, entertaining the academic um, colleagues of my father. But her love of public relations was drawing her back and my parents were fervently committed to um, having the resources to be able to pay for my siblings and and myself to go to college. So she knew going back to work would help make that um, a possibility. And she uh, originally was a teacher's aide so that she could be home at least while I was in second grade coming home from school. But by third grade, she went back full force in PR and just a side note, in the 1950s, she did public relations for the New York, the New York Public Library, you know, on Fifth Avenue, while my dad was working on his PhD at the at Columbia's Russian Institute. So this was going back to her roots, and she uh, directed PR for the Albany Public Library, and then she ended up working for various PBS stations. Um, and by the time I was in high school, she was flying all over, and was the first. PBS employee to serve as a president of a trade association at the time called the Broadcast Promotion and Marketing Executives, which was very unusual because the, the normally the presidents and the people who ran, you know, the association were very much um, part of the network world, you know, ABC, CBS, because obviously PBS and PBS stations didn't have the money for PR and publicity that the commercial stations did. but. Uh, interestingly enough, I used to always say to her, you know, when I got to an age where I actually understood what she did, and I would say, mom, why don't you work for CBS or, or ABC? And she would say, because the content that PBS produces is far superior. (laughs) And it's true. It is, it is even today. And, you know, obviously this was at a time when we didn't have a thousand TV stations and, and all sorts of things, but her commitment to service and social good. Became so apparently clear to me, so that that gives you a little bit of a background, and then I'll just quickly sum up. At her memorial service, which happened to be at the end of January of 1987, um, was a Saturday afternoon uh, in upstate New York, and there was a nor'easter, and 600 people still showed up. So that gives you an idea of her uh, her reputation as as a good as 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 a wonderful human being, and obviously I you know she's anybody who is killed in such a fashion as sainted. But and obviously, you're not getting a very objective view coming from me. But if, if you read any of the, um, the letters and the, the press coverage that came following it, it, it definitely um, stands to
0: be true. What was your relationship with her like and your favorite memories of her?
1: I there were many years that I hated the fact that she was gone so much. Um, I was the youngest and my brother and sister were already off in college when I was in high school. So I had some resentment. Um, but by the time I got into college, I was amazed by you know the world that she lived in. I mean, I, growing up in upstate New York, you typically don't have have friends whose parents you know like Phil Donahue or Marlo Thomas or um, you know she was able she was able to get Tom Seaver to you know sign an autograph for my brother. You know, I mean, like the the connection she was able to maneuver were incredible. And again, at a time when this was all done via the phone and a typewriter. Um, but I think what really always struck me is what dear friends still to this day who have stayed in my life say to me is, your mom was the mom we would always come to talk to about our boy troubles or our home troubles. Um, so even no matter, you know, being a wife and a mom and and having such a professional um, uh, existence, she still made time to always be open and lend an ear. And and obviously, um, I shouldn't say obviously, but she was extraordinarily progressive. When I went to college in 1982, she would not let me go to college without birth control, um, whereby I had friends who couldn't even talk about such things with, with their parents, let alone their mothers.
0: How did her ethos and her essence uh, shape your life? Well, you could
1: make the case that My entire professional life has been around social impact uh, that that has come from her, Um, not to mention um, one of the uh, ethos of my book is this notion of how can I lead with being of help? How can I lead with being of service? And that directly came from her. And lastly, and, and I have to credit my father with this as well and this notion of every single person no matter what role they play in our world, in society is deserved of our respect, kindness, consideration and curiosity. And that was something they both embedded in me from a very, very early, early
0: age. You've dedicated your book The Lost Art of Connecting to your mom and you know, as you said, she was a serial connector, you are a serial connector and you say connection is your superpower and that it comes as naturally to you as breathing. Um, How much of those skills came from her and your dad and and what do you think uh, gave you those those uh, the interest in in being able to connect with others. Well, it's all I ever
1: knew uh, at the breakfast table. I, I joke about this in the book, but it's entirely true. We had a tiny breakfast table for five people and I would literally buy for real estate for my bowl of cereal because they would have the five local newspapers splayed out and yesterday's or the day before's New York Times and Boston Globe where they would be madly clipping and cutting and then going to their respective manual typewriters to write notes like thinking of you cousin Johnny or in my mom's case, thinking of you reporter John. And most likely it was a John at that time rather than a Joan. And my father would, who taught at a women's college for 40 years would teach um, women and then he would have their daughters and then their granddaughters and he would stay in touch with them throughout, you know, his entire life. In fact, at his, memorial service which was in 2008 the letters that poured in from entire you know three generations of families was astounding <laughs> but my you know my assumption when i was that little girl at the table was that everybody's everybody's parents did this and this was the norm so when i first received a fax machine in the early 90s um, i all of a sudden felt like a kid in a candy store because i could clip articles and instantaneously send an article to a person, although I'll be honest with you, I don't know if they've actually ever arrived at their destination. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, once the internet came along in 1980s, 1996, 95, I could send an article to five or six people or 10 people simultaneously, and by the nature of doing that, actually connect and introduce them based on something common you know, whether it was a a place they had visited or a restaurant that I knew they would all like or something that would resonate and then make a community almost out of that. And that became my calling
0: card. My dad was a clipper. Uh, when I <laughs> when I when I moved to go to graduate school here in the U.S., he would send me in Manila envelopes all of his favorite clips from the Economist and all the papers, and then he would follow up with phone calls saying, "Did you read this clip? Did you read about that?" And then he'd say, "Why didn't you read it?" You know, Dad, I'm really busy. Well, read it and tell me what you think. I'm eager to know your thoughts. <laughs> and then once once email arrived, he was. Absolutely, the kid in the candy store, because he had a vast network of people that he would be sending clips to relatives, friends of relatives, you know, and when Facebook and all that came along, everybody else would be sharing family photos and stuff, but he would be posting articles from the New York Times oh. and the Wall Street Journal, and was, he was always sad that nobody really commented on those things.
1: <laughs> well, I, <laughs> when, we, when my dad um, retired, I think was in 92, 93, we gave him a computer, and he put a sheet over it. So my dad was the polar opposite of your father and continued with his manual typewriter until the day he died. But I will tell you, he was convinced, and I know we're audio, so people can't see my picture, but he was convinced, and this again back in the 90s, that uh, my doppelganger was Julia Roberts. So he would, every time she was in a movie, he would buy People magazine just so he could see the pictures. And then he would cut the articles out and mail them. I was living in Seattle for many years. And it just was so, it always made me laugh, but it was such a part of who he was. Um, And obviously I can't imagine my mom wouldn't have continued, but I have a feeling uh, she would have embraced the technology, gung ho.
0: Probably, uh, so, so what would you say is the essence of a, a super connector, you, know, you kind of describe it as a human customer service relationship management, <laughs> a CRM app, and you describe yourself as a walking talking CRM app, which I relate to since as a reporter, I, I, I've been the same way. Well, I think first of all,
1: curiosity and actually just being very curious about others and not coming with preconceived notions in other words, like it put tampering what you know, we, we tend to sometimes think uh, and always willing to open that door without hesitation. I also think it's it, having a good memory comes in handy. It's not a requirement, but I think it's being vulnerable and being open, being willing to open yourself up a little bit so that others feel a little bit more comfortable to open themselves up. So it becomes a more meaningful conversation rather than, you know what is the weather today, or what did you have for lunch today? But I also think reciprocity and leading with how can you be helpful to others is truly what commits to a a a, deep, a deepening connection that goes and stands the test of time. And I see that as res, re, reciprocal. I'm obviously having trouble speaking today, uh, but I, I I don't see it as linear. But I also realize that. Life ebbs and flows, and you're going to have people come in and out of your life. But somebody who is a meaningful, uh, meaningfully connected person will circle back uh, and reconnect without feeling like, "Oops, I, 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 I might have goofed." But owning it up and 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 being upfront and being direct.
0: You know, many people today, especially in the age of LinkedIn and other social media platforms, look upon relationships as purely transactional, right? As in what's in it for me? How do I leverage this contact? What can I get from them? But in your book, uh, The Lost Art of Connecting, you say serial connectors or super connectors take a different approach. What's your approach and what's the number one question you ask people when you meet them?
1: Well, sorry to be redundant, but I literally will ask them, you know, what what is happening in their lives? I will ask them, you know, what, what are they focusing on or what is potentially keeping them up at night? And then I always, always, always offer to provide some sort of support, whether it's an introduction to someone, whether it's a nonprofit that they might be interested in, but it's that first asking the questions to learn a bit more about the other person. And of course, not making assumptions before you do so. So, it, it, and I hate to make it so simple, but it really comes down to that and leading
0: with an open heart. And you describe a specific method, the gather, ask, do method. What is that process? Sure. Well, the gather, ask,
1: do method is essentially the backbone of the book. And in the gather phase, which is first, you connect with the actual most important person in your life, and that is yourself. And you Essentially, do some self-reflection to find out what are your hopes and dreams and goals over the next, say, four years, four months, hell, even four weeks, and who is it that you want to connect with or reconnect with that is going to help you get there, but also that you can be helpful to. Also, during the gather phase, you do a self-assessment to find out what are your superpowers, What are your secret sauces? And we all have them. That way, when you ask people, of course, how you can be helpful, you have something to offer up. And lastly, during the gather phase, you do everything in your power to think about how can you break the hermetically sealed bubble so that you connect with people who aren't the same age, the same race, the same color, the same cultural background that you have because we all know you're gonna learn more when you expose yourself to people that have had differing life experiences than yourself. So that's gather. Ask is learning to ask the meaningful questions of others so that you can find out what their hopes and dreams and goals are. And if you listen carefully, which I learned in the research for the book, how woefully bad at we are, including myself, you can get to the do phase. And the do phase harkens back to, I think, of my mom. And that is, you know, taking what you've listened to and heard from another person and becoming the reliable, trustworthy, responsible person who responds in the sense of saying, or doing what you said you're going to do. Uh, And that means showing up in the good time and the bads. That means making that introduction that you said you were going to do. Doesn't have to be the next hour or the next day, but it means making time to do those things.
0: So that's the gather, ask, do. It's simple and yet it's very complicated. If you're not in that, if you're not, if you don't have that background of, you know, naturally doing it, it's something you have to really train yourself to do.
1: Well, and I will, I will go so far as say, given the strange times we're living in, I would make the case that this is a very good time to Assess that gather as do. Uh, it's also, I would go so far as, you know, depending on how things roll out in the next several months, we have a do-over opportunity. And when in life have we had that, right? So this is a, is a great time to be very intentional about your hopes and dreams, and thinking about who in your community or who do you want in your community that can help you find those or reach those.
0: Yeah, I mean, the timing of this book is so perfect given, you know, the fact that we have had a global shutdown and uh, the fact that, you know, children haven't been in school for a year and are wondering if they even have social skills left and the fact that adults haven't been going into the workforce. Right. And so it's been such a Zoom uh, environment and Zoom fatigue, which you talk about in your book. And on top of that, we live in this tech-fueled, tech-centric world, which gets more and more intense every day, right, with these big tech giants. They want you to get sucked into their universe, right? And all of the algorithms Ooh. are driven around how much time you spent in those apps. That it's, you know, it's you. There, there are a lot of people today who probably don't know the basics of social interaction, particularly with the COVID-19 isolation. So in many ways, I think your book is very timely and almost is like a practical guide to, right?
1: Well, I'd like to think that. Thank you very much. Um, When people see the title, often they think it was written in response to the pandemic. But (laughs) truth be told, it was conceived about four or five years ago. And my goal was to really harken back to get the humanity back in connecting and get us away from... Uh, looking at the clicks and the likes and the followers as a means to assess whether we've been successful in connecting. Uh, and if you notice, the book isn't called The Lost Art of Networking. Um, and I am not anti-networking by any stretch of the imagination. We will have to do it again. And in some ways we're doing it as you know, in Zoom rooms and Microsoft team meetings. Um, but I find connecting is much more intentional and I do, um, and maybe I am a, a rose-colored glasses woman, but I fervently believe after this time in isolation that we are no longer going to take our relationships for granted. And my hope is that when we are back at events and we are having conversations that we're not looking at our phones or you know, not, you know, are looking over somebody's shoulder to see you know, what shinier object happens to be in the room.
0: Definitely. I mean, that's such a trait, right? You're always looking past the person you're talking to and eyeballing other people's uh, badges that they're wearing with their names on it and things like that. Um, Do you think connecting is uh, different for women than for men? You know,
1: it's hard for me to answer that because I am a woman. Um, And in the book, I actually make the case that women need to intentionally have two networks. Um, One, because, you know, Uh, For better or worse, uh, well, actually for worse is my personal opinion, but um, we are still living in a patriarchy. We are still, you know, business, government, et cetera, is primarily run by by white men of a certain age or age category. And it wouldn't behoove women to learn from men, you know, how they negotiate their negotiation skills, um, how they've networked and connected and, and then take that back to our women's networks. Also, we know that women have bore a much harder, or, or much harder brunch from this pandemic with the She Session. So we know we need our women's networks and our women's communities um, to, to rely on, to have a shoulder to cry on, to have support, to have compassion. So um, I, it, it, it's just, I can't make a specific generalization um, because again, also growing up, both of my parents were exceptional connectors, in a very different different way. But they both were.
0: Yeah, but I like your idea of the two net two types of you know connection uh, mm-hmm. levels mm-hmm. of connecting because women need that kind of uh, all women network for certain things, but then they uh, you know need the broader network as well. Looking back, you know, at your life and your career and how you managed to build both after the death of your mom, you know, looking back, what would you say to that 22 year old woman watching the news that New Year's Eve and, and the journey that you've been on? And, and what would you say to your mother if she were here today or that you say to her oh. in your daily inner conversations with her?
1: Well, I would thank her obviously. And I'll, I'll just tell you something, um, Shitra, when I, years ago, I remember thinking to myself, someday I'm gonna write a book and I'm gonna dedicate it to her just so people years later can know about her. And sometimes when I'm asked what's my favorite part of the book, I say the two recipes of hers that I share at the back of the book, which she used to make, um, it's what we would almost term today, rugula, But growing up, we called them horns and strudel. Um, and they were pastries that she would always make at the various open houses we would have at my home. Um, and she would take them to events to give away, et cetera. So I would say, mom, look what I did. I, I honored you. Uh, and I sound like a goofy little 15 year old saying that, but I, I think it would have to be thank you. And I miss you if, if, if she were, or I've missed you if she was, she was alive today. Um, and I, I look back and I think, you know, what I would say to myself, oh, a thousand million things. But what comes to mind right now is don't be afraid. Because, you know, in our 20s and 30s, we live in fear of every time we make a decision that it's going to be the wrong decision. And I think in hindsight, and perhaps you'll relate to this, I have found that it has been the detours, not the destination. That has been what has been miraculous, um, both personally and professionally. It's opening those doors. Um, But there were many times I was afraid to do so.
0: You've had a lot of pressure, um, adversity in this past year. Even as you've been promoting your book, you know health challenges that you've talked about on on social media, and on uh, top of you know navigating COVID nineteen, the pandemic, you know the, all of the complications of relationships and connectivity and all of that. Have you had any uh, what I describe as viral insights? That moment of clarity brought upon by a crisis like COVID nineteen. Oh gosh, I wish I did. <laughs> You've been too busy writing the book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's been hard. I mean, I, I, about two weeks before the book was coming out, I, I called my sister and I burst into tears because it felt so disingenuous to be writing a book about the meaning of, of connections when I had just spent, at the time, 12 months completely alone. I don't have parents, as we know. I don't have children and I am single. So um, it has been a very lonely time. And to be publishing a book about this seemed ridiculous. And of course she walked me off the ledge and said, no, 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 there's never been a more time, important time for, for a book of this subject matter. So that helped. But uh, I, I guess, you know, I'm trying to think of something profound. I mean, you know, I, as mentioned, I have had three hospital stays in the last three months, I guess it is, two and a half months. And my dog had major surgery herself. So I guess I just have to be on the side of grateful for all the good stuff. Although again, that sounds extraordinarily Pollyanna. Um, I think I also just have to say sometimes things just suck. And I have as much as the highs of the book and all the wonderful accolades and these amazing podcasts like yours that I get to be on, um, it's been challenging. I can only be who I am and I can only be incredibly, Upfront and and vulnerable, because there's nothing as there's no such thing as perfection.
0: On that note, Susan, thank you so much for joining me on When It Mattered and for this fascinating and inspiring conversation about your life and your amazing parents.
1: I am so honored you invited me. Thank you ever so much.
0: Susan McPherson is a serial connector, angel investor, and corporate responsibility expert. She's the founder and CEO of McPherson Strategies, a communications consultancy focused on the intersection of brands and social impact. Susan is the author of The Lost Art of Connecting, The Gather, Ask, Do Method for Building Meaningful Relationships. She has had 25 years and more of experience in marketing, public relations, and sustainability communications, and has appeared on NPR, CNN, USA Today, The New Yorker, New York Magazine, and the Los Angeles Times. McPherson is the recipient of Forbes Magazine's 50 Over 50 Impact 2021 Award, is a member of the MIT Solve Women and Technology Leadership Group, and she serves on numerous advisory boards, including nonprofits such as Girls Who Code, She's the First, and the Op-Ed Project. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.